Bing bong. I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by Dividend Dave. Dave has started his own podcast. I was a guest and actually put it on this feed last week. But I had him on the other side this time and interviewed him. We got a little of a background of his story. Uh, Very interesting, the ups and downs, trials and tribulations of investing. Why he loves the dividend investing strategy. And uh, how he looks at the overall macro environment. Much, 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 much more. And it was an overall great conversation. We went back and forth. Uh, he's seen a lot in his uh, investing career, and he brings a unique perspective. And he talks about a lot of the benefits of going through all that. So listen up so you can learn from some of the lessons that he learned as well, and hopefully not make any of the same mistakes But as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice and should never be taken as financial advice. Both Dave and I are not financial advisors. We're simply doing this for entertainment purposes only. Now, let's get into the episode. Whoosh. Hello, 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 and welcome to another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. But first, I'd like to thank everybody who's listening on Podcasting 2.0 apps like Fountain, if you're listening on those, um, then, you know, feel free to leave me a little boost. And if you leave me a little boost and a review, I will read it on the show. Um, So I have one from Ace Dost, who listened to the seventh episode with Deer Point Macro. So he went and dipped in the well and uh, listened to one and said, interesting points of view when it was when uh, Deer Point and I were talking about a short recession. So I think we're closing in on episode 40 here. So uh, he really dipped back there. So I appreciate everybody going back and listening to those early on episodes too. So, um, But on that note, I do have a very special guest. If you listened to the last episode, I was on his podcast. And uh, now I got him on my side of the, the table. So Dividend Dave, how are you doing tonight? Hey, yeah. Thank you so much for having me having me on your podcast. It was definitely fun to have you on, on my show, the passive income podcast. And yeah, that's, let's just uh, get into it. Yeah, for sure. So to get started, I always like to ask everybody, you know, what kind of got you started in investing and uh, you know, how you kind of got to where you're at today. So I like to leave it a little broad and open-ended. So just go ahead and run with it. Okay. So like I pre-warned you, this could be a little bit long-winded. <laughs> so bear with me as I tell my story, basically. So I guess for context first, right now I'm 49 years old. 30 years ago, I was 19 years old. The math, the math checks out, right? So as a, as a 19 or 20-year-old, and, and you have to also keep in mind, this is now around 1990. The, the early 90s, uh, I guess 1992, I was 19 years old. And I wanted to get into investing. We didn't have things back then like apps on our phones or cell phones. We didn't have the internet. We had, you know, books in a library. And I had read some books and you could still get general knowledge from those books, which was great, right? Obviously, I read one book called The Wealthy Barber. It's not as talked about as much anymore. But it's still a very good book. That book, The Wealthy Barber, preached two things. Uh, number one being 
pay yourself first, which is still a thing to this day, obviously. And then the the second thing that it really preached was to invest or save or do something with at least 10% of your income. So, okay, as a 19-year-old, I'm thinking, I'm not making a lot of money, but I can afford to invest 50, 75, 100 bucks a month, right? Whether that's 10% of my income or not, that's somewhere in the ballpark. And so I recall phoning a stockbroker, like actually picking up a landline, because that's what we had back then, landlines, and phoning a stockbroker. And that stockbroker said to me, oh, you need to, I can't remember if it was, if it was $10,000 or 10,000 shares, but either way, as a 19-year-old kid, I had neither, right? I did not have 10 grand to, and even if it was a, you know, if it was a $5 stock, like, do you think I had 50 grand? Of course not, right? So obviously that was, and that was disheartening. And I probably should have phoned around to more stockbrokers to see if maybe there was a, some stockbroker out there that would, would have let me invest, say, a thousand. But just that first phone call was so disheartening that I was, I guess, a little bit put off by it. What I did eventually find was uh, an actual financial advisor who got me into investing in a mutual fund. So this story is also like very much a warning for anybody in the younger generation, because to this day, it's like 30 years later, if I still had that mutual fund, I'd be sitting on a very nice nest egg. I did get into that mutual fund. And as we know, mutual funds have their pros and cons, like everything else. A lot of people do seem to think the cons outweigh the pros when it comes to mutual funds. But at the time, that was literally my best option. So I think I started it with with like a $100 deposit and then $75 a month um, thereafter. And again, starting as a, I'm pretty sure I was 19, maybe 20. And I did that, you know, religiously for, I think five, maybe six years. And at some point in my mid twenties now at around 25 years old, I had that mutual fund up to about 10 grand maybe a little bit less. I, I, I seem to think that it did hit 10 grand. I can't remember exactly. But of course, life happens. You're in your mid-20s. You need money. Well, what did I do? I withdrew all of the money and I closed the account. And to this day, I'm kicking myself because obviously, if I still had that, that mutual fund and if I had, had kept paying $75 every single month, for 30 years, I would be sitting on, like I said, a very nice egg, probably at least half a million, right? But like I said, life happens. I needed the money. I closed the account. I used the money for whatever I needed at the time. And yeah, so that was, I guess, my first foray into investing, which started out great, didn't end so great, but definitely a warning to anybody who is younger listening to this to just grind through it do whatever you need to do to keep that that money in that account whether it's now a you know an investment account i know in in the us you have robin hood in canada we have wealth simple and it's just a matter of keeping it there doing whatever you have to do to not withdraw that money because 30 years later i i like oh 
I'm going to move on from that. <laughs> it's making me sad thinking about it. <laughs> um, so then fast forward to, I guess, yeah. to the mid-2000s, 2006, 2007, before the financial crash. And by this point, obviously, we did have the internet. We did have online banking. We still did not have apps on our phone. We had, you know, I could buy stocks through my bank, but I was paying nine ninety five in a commission per trade. So I'm thinking, well, I need to like save up enough to at least buy like a hundred shares to make that, to make that $10 commission, nine ninety five to make it reasonable, to make it worthwhile. Right. But again, if it's a six or seven or $9 share or stock, you're like, well, I don't always just have an extra 600, 700, $900 lying around. So I kind of got into some, investments in that era of the the 06 to 09 i actually did kind of well on a couple like the the financial crash actually helped me a little bit where i was able to you know buy a few stocks cheap and sell them for a bit more like in 2009 but then again life happens and i ended up withdrawing all of that money somewhere around so 2010, I, 20, 2009, late 2009, I met my now ex-wife <laughs> and we got married in 2013. And at this time too, in 2013, I'm trying to get back into, at this point, obviously too, I had figured out the, the dividend strategy of like, oh, if, sure, you might start out at 50 cents a month or quarter, but every single time that you reinvest, you're going to just kind of keep making more and keeping more, making more and making more, right? Unfortunately, my, like I said, now ex-wife didn't understand the passive income strategy that dividends provide. So I guess just fast forward again to just last year or the year before into 2020, 2021, um, the crash, well, the mini crash of the pandemic, and let's call it the pandemic crash of 2020, right? March, 2020. And I didn't have anything invested at that point in time. And I was like, oh, this is this. And of course, all along, I'm watching the markets and I'm thinking, you know, like, well, you kind of can get what I'm thinking. And so that March, 2020 really, really struck a chord with me. It was like, right now is the time that everybody should be buying shares because they're all on fire sale, right? And then I guess later on into 2020 and into 2021 is when I really started to apply myself into the uh, dividend investing strategy, which brings us up to the current date of 2022. And again, sorry if this is, I know it was, I knew it was going to be a little bit long-winded and, and I pre-warned you about that, but it does give you my background of, of where I've where, where I've been, where I've come from, what I've done as an investor, and where I all you could almost see where I hope to be too in like you know whether it's ten or fifteen years. And again, being at, at forty nine now, in ten years I'm at fifty nine. That's getting pretty close to when you want to think about retirement, right? So it's I really need that passive income to to grow over these next ten years. 
Yeah, and that's great. And I, I mean, I have no problem with it being long winded or anything like that, right? Because it gives a lot of context. And I think, you know, I got listeners of all ages and, and, and things like that, too. But I think that the interesting part, too, is like, you've kind of been through, you know, quite a bit of, you know, market cycles, right? You've seen 2008, yep. you've seen the dot com boom kind of as like about, you know, a little bit right after when you got started. So you've seen a lot of things go up and down, right? So, I mean, I guess what has your, been your biggest takeaway? And, uh, you know, obviously you've seen a lot of life events too. So, you know. That's a nice way of saying you're old. <laughs> oh, but I mean, I'm just, yeah, I, I guess so, right? But I mean, at the same time, it's like, right, you, you know, you've, you've gone through, you know, marriage and, and whatnot and other things like that too. Unfortunately, you know, it didn't work out the way you initially planned. But, um, you know, you've seen a lot of things. And so you, you understand too, that, you know, everybody's ideal strategy, right. Is buy and hold and hold on to those things forever. But sometimes you can't do that. Right. So I guess what's the, the biggest advice and, and like lesson that you learn from going through these market cycles and just, yeah. you know, kind of being an investor through, you know, a lot of different turns in your own personal life as well. So again, I just for more context talking about what I've lived through. And this is, I was obviously a little bit younger in, for Black Monday, I believe that was 1987. I think I was 13 years old, maybe 14 years old. But I remember that market crash, and it seemed like it was going to be it, like, and again, back then we didn't have the internet. You got the news the next day in the newspaper, or maybe, maybe at like six o'clock at night on the six o'clock news, if they had time to get it onto that, that show. But that, uh, Black Monday market crash in the late 80s, it just seemed like the world was ending. But, again, you know, again, looking back, the, uh, you know, the more knowledgeable investor probably realized, oh, this is a perfect time to buy. The market just crashed. Let's just buy everything on fire sale. So, yeah, uh, to your point, I even before I started investing, before I was even too before I was old enough to even really understand the market or know what the market was about. Uh, to your point, I have seen several market cycles and yeah. Um, no, my, uh, to answer your question, my number one, number one, by far number one advice to any younger listener is if you've started and now today is the best day to start. If you haven't started, today's the best day to start. If you haven't started, you know, just start. But my number one advice is, you know, just keep holding, figure out a way to not have to dip into your investment account, figure out a way to not do that, because that was by far the biggest mistake I've I've made in, in my investing journey. So, all right, you know, I know, I know we're kind of cutting open some of these wounds, but if you were to go back and do it again, would you do something like, you know, maybe make a emergency fund? Um, I know like a lot of financial advisors kind of talk about that for like, you know, maybe three to six months or something like that in, in a savings account or something along those lines. Like what kind of uh, thing would you maybe change your strategy to, I guess, you know, prevent maybe that sell off? Yeah. So uh, great question. And yeah, we all we all have these regrets in life. So you can't really look at it like that, because no matter what it's in, everybody has regrets in life, whether it's, you know love or money or anything else there's always regrets in life and yeah if if i could do it again which 
we can't. <laughs> so I think that's another thing to point out is you, you can't go back in time. You know, I, I can't just hop in that DeLorean and, and go back to 1985. Right. <laughs> Which is funny. <laughs> um, yeah, obviously, it, yeah, you know, having an emergency fund is crucial. At the time, I had never even, again, this is going back to when all of your knowledge was supplied either by school, which when it comes to finances, even to this day, schools do not teach you any kind of financial literacy. So my only education was relying on on books in a library. And yeah, so, but having an emergency fund, if I had even known the term back then, could have been life-changing. That's, I think that's all I can really say to answer that question, to be honest. Yeah, and I, like I said, I, I wasn't saying it so, you know, you can go back and in regret or whatnot, but I'm saying it more so for, you know, maybe some of those younger listeners out there who are kind of just getting started, right? Because yeah, I think that there's like, you know, a level of risk that, and maybe there's like a risk tolerance that the younger generation, like maybe even a little younger than me uh, has right now, just from kind of seeing these COVID shoots shooting up and, and, you know, maybe the, you know, shit coin, doge coin kind of thing, like people kind of just jumping into these cryptos and whatnot that has made a lot of people just kind of FOMO into a lot of these things and expect like, Hey, there's going to be another thing where I can get rich with a little bit of money. Right. I mean, I go around to some of these places and they're like, all right, what penny stock is going to end up turning into $10 or something. So I could 20, 30 X my, you know, my money. And they're not really expecting these, you know, just general kind of compound returns. And just like, you know, the, the old belief of just slowly putting into a mutual fund or stacking slowly. And then, you know, you'll get rich over time and then, you know, really truly, you know, benefiting from that compound interest. And so I think like that's where a lot of, you know, people my age and younger have kind of uh, lost track of that. And that's where I'm I'm a little worried that, that people are kind of going to get in trouble, right? Because like, I mean, you said that earlier with the dividend strategy, it might be 50 cents a quarter or something like that, but you keep continually stacking on that every paycheck or what have you, like that 50 cents will turn into a dollar, then it'll turn into two, then it'll turn into four. And then just kind of kind of, keep, keep going. And, you know, as that, as you continually reinvest, then, you know, eventually you don't even need to put any money in. And as all of a sudden you're making thousands of dollars every quarter and, uh, you know, it's just continuing to grow. So, um, you know, I think that it's, uh, you know, obviously is a, you know, we wish things turned out a little bit different and, you know, you're sitting here sitting a millionaire and telling us about how lucky you were because you were holding on to everything. But, uh, I think there's there's lessons to be learned there. Too. I think yeah, there's definitely a life lesson to be learned there for sure. And so I hope some people take the don't feel sorry for me. I like I still have a, a decent life. Like I I own half. I, I like to say I own half of my house. The bank owns the other half. But at least you know I have a roof over my head. Um, you know I have you know I have a decent job and like everything. The majority of things in my life are are paid for i can keep up with my bills and all that so it's not like i'm it's not like i'm hurting um i did have a point though to a couple points to your last statement one for people your age and like you said some of your younger listeners i think you know how lucky you are these days that like i said you have 
and we, oh, even me at 49, I figured it out. I have an app on my phone. I, I punch into my phone. I go do, 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 do. And I, ha- I buy stocks and I buy dividends. Right. And so obviously huge fundament, fundamental change between, you know, looking in the newspaper the next day in 1991 to see if your stock went up or down compared to today where the information is just right at your finger, literally at your fingertips all day, every day. Right. So it's a huge advantage if you know how to use your phone properly, you know how to use your phone for apps, not just wasting your time all day on Instagram and whatever other social media, Facebook and whatnot, where you're just literally wasting your time all day. Don't waste your time on social media. Use things like you can waste your time on Twitter, obviously as well, but if you're following the right accounts and you know, both you and I are following a lot of great accounts on Twitter that are teaching you things and learning things you're sharing information it's just an incredible time to for that information sharing so that i i guess that's kind of my uh, point number one to your past your just last statement and point number two you started talking about crypto and people hoping to just like find the next whatever that's going to skyrocket which made me think of last year how remember when shiba anu just went off the rails and sure lots of people made money but so many people were buying on the way up and that's and you see it in stocks also in in penny stocks i know we talked previously about like um the meme stocks amc and gamestop and whatnot and people are buying at the top because it's the popular thing they heard about it on reddit or whatever and you know, it's great if you get in on the floor and sell at the top, but so many people hear about it later when it's the news. So it's like they're buying the news, but the old saying is buy the rumor, sell the news. So by the time it's the news, I, I think we talked talked about this on my podcast a little bit about by the time it's the news, you, you've already missed out. Oh, 100%, right? I mean, it's it's like the same kind of deal, right? So if you buy some crypto or some stock when penny stock when it kind of gets popularized you're probably going to be you know buying at near the top right because that's just kind of how it works right i mean yeah. like everybody else kind of figures it out a little bit before you and then you're trying to fomo it in and that's when you run into trouble um and i think we kind of saw a lot of that in in covid too right we saw like the immediately run up and then the, the immediate crash but we're kind of in an interesting time that a lot of newer investors haven't seen we're seeing the Federal Reserve raise interest rates at the fastest rate in 40 years uh, as they just raised another 75 basis points yesterday. We're recording this on Thursday, the 3rd. Um, November so, 2022. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I'd, I'd like to hear your opinion, I guess, on the overall just macro environment. Like, you know, yeah. obviously don't don't uh, you don't need to give a full on prediction of where we're going or whatever. But, um, you know what kind of uh, things are you seeing out there and maybe how is it different than other swings that you've seen in the past? So uh, great question. And I don't pay a lot of attention to that because, you know, I'm in Canada, the Fed's going to do what it does in the U S in Canada. It's called BOC bank of Canada. And they quite, they don't always mirror what the Fed does, but it's uh we'll call it a reasonable facsimile. (laughs) So 
quite often, obviously, when the Fed raises rates in the in the U.S., a, a month or two later, uh, Bank of Canada will will raise rates in uh, in Canada as well. As as far as the the macro outlook perspective of it, I I try not to let the the noise bother me too much. Like it's 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 going to happen. They're going to raise rates um, at some point. And this is going back to, like you said, viewing the market cycles. At some point, they're going to lower interest rates again. I don't know when that's going to be. I can't sit here and say, oh, they're in 2023 or 2024, they're going to lower the the rates again. But there is a cycle to it. It will happen, whether it's 23, 24, 2025, who knows? So I, I try not to let, like I said, that outside noise bother me too much. I just want to stay focused on my plan of you know growing my portfolio growing my passive income hopefully helping others along the journey too if if they're you know watching and listening to your podcast watching and listening to my podcast following all these other great accounts on twitter whatever it is like everybody's trying to help everybody so i'm not too overly concerned with you know what i you know what i'm saying i'm not too overly concerned with with that what's happening right now today i know it'll i know in the future sure maybe before they start lowering them they could raise them another 50 or 75 in in another three six months who knows but somewhere down the line it'll start to lower again and then did you have a second question there about like recession well i was essentially just asking like how do you see it differently than than maybe potential other swings um i know you say you don't really pay too much attention but you know has this been something that you've uh almost kind of prepared yourself for or you know is it dependent on on your market outlook like your longevity in the market um or like you know how you're kind of investing for the long term right so <laughs> it's funny i saw a tweet today about asking asking if the recession is nine innings long where where do you think we are so obviously nine innings is a baseball game and a lot of the responses to that tweet were bottom of the sixth top of the seventh uh you know mid middle of the seventh whatever and i don't know if it's that late in the recession i was actually thinking about dming you saying i was stuck at a train on my way home i just uh i live close to train tracks so quite often get stopped at trains and i was thinking about it when i stopped at the train it's like i'm not sure if we're that late into into this recession into this cycle right is but i like i'm confident we're into it like i'm quite confident we're at least into the bottom of the second top of the third bottom of the third somewhere in the in the early early to start of the mid innings so that's i i guess where i see where i see the market cycle right now uh with this they they keep saying recession looming it really seems like the recession is here but again that's you know media spin right the recession looming and then they finally admit, oh, the recession has actually been here for, you know, in six months time, they'll actually admit, oh, the recession has been here for a year. And we look back and say, well, we know, we knew that, right? Um, and I think, was it you and I talking, maybe another one of my guests on my podcast where we were talking about 
or I was mentioning, I don't see this recession. You're, again, you're asking me about market cycles. I don't see this recession as, um, what's the word, like devastating as past recessions that I've lived through. You know, again, like I like I said, I, I saw that market crash in the late 80s. There was a, you know, the early, the majority of the 90s seemed to be a recession. And I, I don't see this recession and having anywhere near that teeth. Again, I could be wrong, just my opinion. I'm not an economist. I, I, I don't know this for a fact. I, this is just my opinion. Obviously not financial advice by any means. And I think it was you and I saying like, how can you have a recession and a labor shortage at the same time? It To me, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. So what, where's the give, right? Like what gives? Any thoughts on, on, on how you can have a recession and a labor shortage at the same time? Yeah. Um, so I was kind of, I've kind of been giving this a lot of thought lately. Um, I know like. Was it some- you and I talking about that? I, I don't know. I think we, we kind of mentioned it, but I don't know if we talked about like a brief one because I personally think it's going to be kind of bloody. And I don't know if that's because of, you know, just my lack of experience and not really being through any of these, uh, you know, different recessions and whatnot. Um, but personally, I think we have a lot of crazy factors going on, right? So we have inflation at like all time highs um, for, a, you know, a long drawn out period of time. And the Federal Reserve is kind of pushing the uh, bar up, essentially, right? They said before the inflation target was 2%, right? And so, you know, Jerome Powell has said that uh, at the end of the day, having the unemployment number go up would be viewed as, as, a success, as a success because too many people are having jobs where they're, they're not really working too hard. So, there is a lot of jobs open, but I think like, you know, I personally went through a job hunt in the past, like, you know, five or six months anecdotally. And through that job hunt, I found that a lot of mid like tier level jobs were not really hiring. It's more beginner or maybe some senior level, but those senior level will probably always be around. Right. And right. so it was mostly just beginner and starter level jobs. So if you're kind of in that mid tier, people don't really want to pay you what you were making before because these tech companies were, you know, paying a lot more than you probably deserved and, and whatnot. And so uh, people are either having to take pay cuts or, uh, you know, they're not, maybe not seeing as much of a increase when they're jumping from job to job. Granted, there's still those scenarios that that's happening. But, um, you know, I just think that we're kind of at this place now where, you know, it's, kind of like this this mid mid uh this like little inflection point and i think a lot of companies are going to start laying off a bunch of people there's going to be a lot of talent out there there's more competition for jobs um but you know the inflation number kind of scares me because their fed has now said that the target is going from two to four percent where in america it was kind of like standard like every year you get a three percent raise because inflation target is two percent so you get that one percent extra well now are people going to be saying well okay the feds targets four percent i need a five percent every every raise and then you know everybody's capex expenditures go up five percent every year instead of three and so uh you know because of that obviously things are going to increase and we've already got high elevated prices you know, we're starting to see rent kind of slow down and, and go down a bit in the U.S., but like 
is it going to go down by a lot? I don't know, because like at the same time, you know, people are still not really able to afford houses. So, you know, that family that was normally going to buy a house and maybe they're, you know, a couple that's a nurse and an engineer, um, as Shane on, on my spaces always says, like, you know, once, that, once a nurse and an engineer can't really afford a house with both of their wages, that's when you're starting to run into problems. Well, I still think we're at that point where, you know, interest rates are going to keep going up on mortgages. And so maybe the overall price is going down, but the monthly payments are still going to be skyrocketed. And right. so because of that, you know, rent's going to still increase or kind of like flatten out here soon. Um, and, uh, you know, and uh, there's not going to be as many people with like higher paying jobs. And so, and then with everything kind of increasing, I think everybody's kind of either been scared to get back into the market or is not really willing to, and is kind of sitting on the sidelines. So I think personally, like we've kind of, I don't know if we've hit the bottom, but maybe we're, we're kind of close on it. Depends on, you know, some other macroeconomic factors, like if a, another war breaks out or whatnot, I know the U S just deployed some more troops over to, uh, to Ukraine. So um, that could be another factor too. another world war breaks out. But I think even if that doesn't break out, I think we're going sideways for a long period of time. I think that there's going to be a long period of, of no growth. And because of that, that's going to be, you know, a recession turning into maybe even a depression. So um, that's the way I kind of view it. On a and positive note, Go ahead. I just on a positive note, millionaires are made during recessions, so we 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 could be in a good position here. Exactly. I just so want to touch back on your your inflation numbers. Go for it. You were talking about like two and three percent. Now, I don't know. Maybe it's different here in Canada, but they compare like monthly to the previous year, and so like in June, July, and I believe August our inflation in 2022 compared to the previous year was like seven, eight and 9%, like ridiculously high inflation numbers. So that was just, I guess, one thing I wanted to point out, like ridiculously high inflation numbers. Yeah. And I think that that's, uh, you know, not only here for the U S it's a, it's a lot worse, you know, a lot of other places in the, you know, I mean, I, I know in Canada, it's maybe not as bad, too, in, as in some places in Europe. And we talked about this a little bit on your show, uh, the, the energy crisis that we got going on over in Europe. So I think there's a bunch of different macro factors about that that can affect the market. I think the U.S. is kind of primed to do better than any almost any other country. Um, but I think there's going to be kind of a move to more of like a nationalistic economy. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I don't have nationalistic or or like, like continental for sure. Obviously Canada and the U S have been incredible trading partners for ever now. And we're, and that'll continue. And, but yeah, I, I think I would agree with you with like, I don't, I might've been mentioning to you about the cost of shipping containers from, from overseas in this past year, which has obviously really made companies look inwards to, to that domestic supply because obviously it used to be cheaper to buy from China. The shipping, the shipping container costs got so astronomical that it became a lot less expensive to buy domestically than to import from, from well, specifically China, but anywhere in Asia. Right. So that's, I guess to your point of like 
whether it's uh, nationalistic or, or continental. I, I, and I, I, I'm sure I can see Europe probably doing the same. We, we were mentioning on, on my show about, you know, Germany being so dependent on, on Russian energy as well, which obviously is caused is causing a huge problem, not just in Germany, but really for all of Europe. So I, I yeah, I can definitely see, you know, Europe looking probably looking to North America for energy, right? To both Canada and the US to supply more, you know, whether it's LNG or propane or oil or whatever, you know, they're trying to, you know, with the sanctions going on against Russia and, but they don't have the infra- infrastructure to, you know, we can ship it over there. They just don't have the infrastructure to offload it from ships, right? So, uh, obviously, you know, they have the infrastructure of the pipelines from Russia into Germany and into the rest of Europe. So it, I don't know. It's uh, obviously it's a um, what is catastrophe the right word? I'm not sure, but it's a mess. And and again, I'm I'm not an economist. I'm not a a, a global affairs expert by any means. But I you know I obviously I listen to the radio i listen to the news i i read things on the internet and 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 you make you know you form your own opinions and judgments and it it just really seems unfortunate what what's happening to primarily germany but the rest of europe as well with with the like you said it's an energy crisis which in the long run could you know bode well for canada and the u.s if we if they europe starts building the infrastructure to to allow the Canadian and US energy imports, right? But again, where where is uh you know natural gas and propane and oil gonna be in a hundred years? We don't know, right? Like that I that's a whole other podcast you could talk all day about uh about where fossil fuels were gonna be in a hundred years. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, that's a that's a rabbit hole we don't need to jump into right now. But on that note, too, what kind of industries and sectors are you kind of looking at, you know, given all these uh, factors? What kind of things are you looking at and, and what do you like in the next, I don't know, five, 10 years? Yeah, great question. So uh, there are a few energy uh, stocks that I uh, ha- have. Rel- well, yeah, they're small positions in uh Algonquin Power and Suncor Energy, which uh, obviously I buy them through the TSX, the Toronto Stock, Toronto Stock Exchange, and I'm quite sure that they're both. I know Algonquin Power is available in New York, and I'm quite sure Suncor is as well. So I I, I do still invest in energy. Obviously, uh, like we we're mentioning on 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 my podcast, it's like everybody needs energy. You know, you're down there in the the sunny south where you don't have to worry too much about winter heat. But the rest of us uh, up here in the great white north and obviously the the northern U.S. states like Michigan and Wisconsin, Maine and, you know, Dakotas and all of that. Obviously, New York and everybody has to worry about uh, heating their homes all winter. So energy is still, in my books, a pretty big play, a pretty important play. Um, other sectors I like, uh, I know we've talked about telecoms. I know we've talked about REITs. Uh, I know we've probably, I'm sure we must've talked about Canadian banking. So yeah, any of those sectors you want to dive into, let's go for it. 
Yeah, I mean, we kind of touched on uh, <clears throat> touched on energy a little bit already, so we'll, we'll move past on that one. But let's get into REITs because uh, I think this is kind of an interesting one. Um, so why do you like REITs? Um, because it seems like the real estate market overall, you know, like like we kind of said, you know, rising interest rates are going to kind of lower those prices, yeah. uh, making it harder for home flippers. Uh, rent's kind of going down a little bit right now. Um, so, yeah, tell us why you like REITs. So I correct. I do like REITs a lot and I have a, a couple of reasons. Probably my number one reason is that it gives me exposure to real estate without being the landlord. I don't have to worry about the phone call at 2 a.m. saying anything, right? Like I'm not getting that phone call at 2 a.m., but I have that nice exposure to a little bit of real estate here and there. And I probably the number two, this probably used to be my number one reason, but I think it's number two now because I really, I really like the fact that I have the exposure to real estate without the worries of being a landlord, right? Uh, the second is that obviously in my journey, I've never found a REIT that doesn't pay a monthly dividend. And not that it really matters that much because it's going to be whether you get paid monthly or quarterly, that percentage annual yield is going to be the same. I do like the monthly because that allows me to reinvest every single month and grow a little bit more every single month. Those are probably my two main reasons why I like REITs uh, as, as a, you know, one of my favorite sectors. Yeah. And I think from my perspective too, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I hear a lot of, uh, a lot of issues going on in the Canadian real estate just sector in general, right? Like it's very difficult to buy a house now. Um, uh, prices are extremely elevated and it seems like it's a play that you can kind of get in and get exposure to that real estate market at obviously a significantly less um, entry point than, you know, maybe buying a, a starter home or something like that. Yeah, right. Great point about uh, the Canadian housing market, Toronto and Vancouver, obviously pretty much the two most popular cities in Canada and real estate pricing is absolutely ridiculous in both of those cities. Like I pretty much dare you to just look up a, like a, like just a normal little two bedroom bungalow in North Vancouver. And it's going, I'm guessing if you, if you go to just a real estate website and, and look for a, like a two bedroom, two bath bungalow, North Vancouver. I would guess you're probably looking at somewhere between 1.2 and 1.5 starting. That's probably like the starting point. So housing prices is, and again, this is Toronto and Vancouver, extremely expensive. You know, a lot of people don't just have 1.5 million laying around. Right. <laughs> I know some people do, but not everyone. Especially so, yeah. getting started too, right? I mean, like it, it's kind of unrealistic to just like, hey, I'm going to put all this money in a savings account and just wait, wait, wait until, because I mean, it's not going to compound your your wealth at all. Well, and like, a, and, you know, to your point, like a starter home, well, isn't like a two bedroom, two bath bungalow, or even a two bedroom, one bath bungalow, isn't that like a starter home? <laughs> what, what, 25 yeah, exactly. to 30 two-year-old has 1.5 million for a starter home so you know the the housing market in vancouver and toronto is 
I, I think a little bit beyond realistic. So yeah, that's my mini rant about those two cities. With that said, and don't get me wrong, I love both those cities. They're great cities. It's great to visit, but just almost impossible to live there. Well, traffic is another thing. I I live in a very rural area for a reason. <laughs> so yeah, once you get outside those two cities, there is a lot of very affordable housing in Canada. And it's just a matter of being willing to not live in in Toronto, Vancouver, and the other cities too are getting expensive as well. Montreal, Calgary, Edmonton, probably even Winnipeg is probably getting up there. I don't know. I haven't, nobody looks at real estate in Winnipeg. <laughs> um, but yeah, once you're, once you're willing to get outside of the, the major urban centers and listen, we're Canada, we've only got like 12 of them, right? There's only 12 major urban centers here. Yeah. If that, right. Like, even our other big cities are not that big, right? Like they're um, like the city I was born in to me, it's a big city, but it's got a population of like 140,000. So that's not a big city. Right. But to me, that's a big city. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I I guess anecdotally too, I went to, I went to Texas A&M for grad school and generally speaking, SEC schools, that's the Southeastern conference. It's big football conference and what have you. Those towns are, are really small. <clears throat> and so A&M is one of those bigger towns, but it has like 250 to 300,000 people there. And it's a very small town by, uh, you know, U.S. Right. So, um, I mean, I get it, you know, it, and to like real estate in those markets where you're probably at right now, like you're not going to, it's going to be tough finding renters and, you know, it's yeah, a little bit more comp or it's, uh, you know, I guess a little bit harder to, to do some creative things. So obviously it's more advantageous to, you know, buy in those bigger markets. And so because of that, you know, it's, it's yeah. just harder. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of issues going on in, in that market from what I hear and I don't know the specifics. So I don't want to speak on it too much, but let's get into the telecom sector. So tell me what you like about that and, uh, why you're kind of bullish on that sector going forward. One last thing on real estate before we jump into telecoms. And this is a little bit of uh, uh, knowledge for you, too. Did you? So this is also I know you're into uh, Airbnb, the other side of your duplex. Did you know that there are two million lakes, over two million lakes in Canada? I didn't know that, but I knew that there was quite a few. Um, So like a lot aren't really populated, right? Right. But there are a lot of cottages and cabins on a lot of these lakes. And so from an Airbnb perspective, I'm sure there would be great potential on so many of those properties. I just wanted to, to squeeze that in there. Also, I like to tell people that there's over 2 million lakes in Canada. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> you just like to drop that fact, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, but telecoms, yeah, let's get into telecoms. Yeah, for sure. So basically, we have three major players in telecoms in Canada being... Uh, Bell Canada, TELUS, and Rogers, Rogers Communications. And they have also become media companies as well. Uh, So Bell owns different, uh, like, Sportsnet stations. And actually, I think their division is called Bell Media. They have a Bell Media uh, and several other companies under that umbrella. I would say Bell's the 
the biggest. It's definitely the oldest of the big three. There are some regional players as well. Um, MTS, which is Manitoba, which I just found out the other day was purchased or merged with Bell. So you can kind of see what happened there. Uh, same with SaskTel, Saskatchewan Telephone. I think they are still independent of the big three. But basically, more or less, those big three are all, again, my opinion, not a financial advice, but all good investments. I have started dollar cost averaging into Bell. Um, yeah, and that, you know, it's the only reason, well, a couple reasons I use Bell myself as my provider. So I, I think I mentioned to you or a few people have heard that I, I jokingly, half jokingly, but probably will buy enough Bell that their dividends will will pay me to buy Talus. Um, that's just sort of something that I'm trying to do on the side for fun. But more long term, I want um, I want to buy enough Bell to pay my cell phone bill. So they pay a quarterly dividend. Let's say my cell phone bill is a hundred bucks a month, and you know I just basically want to get that up to three hundred dollars every quarter. So they're paying me to pay them. There we go. Hey, so you're just recycling their money. That's smart. That's awesome. So good for you. That's- on that. Hopefully, you can keep going through with that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think like telecoms overall, like we're going into a more digital r- world, right? So more people are working remote. Um, essentially, you need internet to survive at this point. Like, I don't know how yeah. most people live their day-to-day life if they don't have internet. Um, so I think that's going to kind of a trend that's continuing. And so it'll be an interesting play going forward that there's obviously going to be winners and losers like there is in every sector. But, um, you know, I think if you can pick a winner, it'd be pretty profitable for you going forward. So. I like that play too. And I'll, and I'll start to look into that as I don't really have too much exposure for that myself. Um, but yeah, on that note, uh, I always wrap it up with one final question. Uh, so what advice do you have for any investor that's kind of getting started and to kind of get them to, to get started in a, an extremely volatile time. People are seeing all over the news, the market is crashing here or there. Yeah. Like, how do you convince somebody like, Hey, you know, the best time to get started in investing is today. Yeah, great question. Um, I'm not sure if I'm the best person to take advice from. <laughs> uh, yeah, great question, though. And so like you said, the best time to start investing is today. The best time to start investing was 10, 15, 20 years ago. The second best time is today, now, just start. Um, I saw another tweet the other day, and basically the tweet was one day, or day one. And I just thought that that sums it right up, right? Like, if you're thinking, oh, one day I'll do it. Oh, one day I'll do it. Well, guess what? One day never comes. But day one starts now, right? So that's probably like you just said, that's probably the best advice is just get started. Uh, the next advice would be think long term. And again, This is even going back to me as a 19-year-old kid. I was thinking long-term. I just didn't have the whatever to to hold through. And But think long-term. Even even if you're starting out at my age in your mid to late 40s, you got to think long-term. Well, where am I going to be in 10 years, 15, 20 years' time, even 30 years' time? Like, oh, am I still going to be alive in 30 years? Hopefully, maybe, who knows? 
but think long term, right? Again, going back to some of the uh, earlier comments we've made about the the GameStops and AMCs and Shiba News of the world. Great if you catch it on the on the ride up, but you know, be be forewarned about buying into those when they're at the top. And it's very easy to hear about them when they're at the top. It's not so easy to hear about them when they're when they're at the bottom, right? So um yeah, long-term investing, you don't have to worry about that nearly nearly as much. You just dollar cost dollar cost average, I guess, is part of that advice. Dollar cost average in, you know, and in 20 years time. You know, I, I speaking going back to Bell, the telecom, I started buying in at around 62, 63. It dropped down to 57 or so. I didn't quite have a chance to to get even one share at 57, which would have been nice. I could have dollar cost averaged down a little bit. It's back up to 61 right now. I'm hoping to to grab another share or two real soon. But in 20 years time, if if I have a nice stack of Bell that's paying me, you know, every quarter, they're paying me that, that dividend to pay them their cell phone bill. Am I going to care? You know, what happened 20 years ago between 57 and 63? You're not going to think about it. You're, it's going to be a distant memory, right? So uh, oh, I don't know if I have any more advice other than that. <laughs> Oh, that's that's perfect. On that note, we'll we'll wrap it up here. So, Dave, I really appreciate your time. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and what you got going on? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so thank you so much for having me on your podcast. You can find me on Twitter right there on the screen at Lovey1973. Lovey was my high school nickname, so that's why I still hold it to this day. Uh, yeah, so feel free to, uh, you know, follow me on Twitter, reach out, DM me, anything. And yeah, so that's where you can find me at Lovey1973 on Twitter. And then as we have mentioned, I am the host of the Passive Income podcast. Uh, Primarily, I've been uploading to YouTube. I'm pretty sure if you search Passive Income podcast, it'll probably come up. Uh, I have been uh, slacking on uploading to the audio platforms. So I apologize for that. I I am on Audia as well, which is um, an audio platform. And yeah, so those are kind of the the main places to find me, though. It's pretty much uh, Twitter and YouTube. Yeah, for sure. And I think if you, you uh, there's a couple that might be the same as Passive Income Podcast or have some Passive Income Podcast on there. So if you search it, you know, the Passive Income Podcast, I think it's if you put the Passive Income Podcast in there, you can find right. it. So, all right. Just well, put Dave, a link in the description below. I I will 100. percent There'll be a link in the show notes and in the the episode notes wherever you get your audio. So be sure awesome. to check it out. I was on one of the episodes, so go ahead and check that out as well. Yeah. And uh, Dave, keep up the good work, man. And uh, I hope to keep interacting with you in the future. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Like I said, I I want to do a live on 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 the podcast sometime soon. So hopefully we can get you on the live on a yeah, live man. stream. We'll have to do it one time one of these days. So. Awesome stuff. So Dave, thanks so much. Okay. 